This week's guest, Michael Pink from Smart PM. In this week's news, solar, concrete, Hensel robots, magic leap in trouble, and more. Construction is the world's oldest industry, but spends the least amount of money on innovation. When we realized people outside the construction industry didn't typically associate construction with technology like virtual reality, apps, and robotics, we started the Contact Crew. Each week, we bring our listeners the latest in contact news and interview the minds behind the technological innovations changing the way we build. So strap in, enjoy the ride, and geek out. It's content crew time. Friday before Thanksgiving, Friday before some big football games, James Hillegas. From the state that looks like it will be in the mix, Ohio, looks like yes. your look like your Buckeyes are gonna are gonna be a contender, bud. We've always been a contender, always a contender. Yeah, except for when they were ruled ineligible in the NCAA for all the recruiting violations. But that's beside the point. Beside Sounds like a the salty point. fan. <laughs> <laughs> they had to go to the SEC to find coaches that could win, but that's beside the point. He came from Ohio. Ah, uh, yeah, ish. So it, what ish? <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Not even a minute in. <laughs> yeah, happy Friday to you, brother. You doing all right? Yeah, man. Work's busy. It's you know winter here in the Northeast uh, of the country and. Selling prefab is like selling candy to a fat kid. Every GC's buying it. Every GC's buying it because they got to have their stuff built. And in the winter in Ohio, you can still prefab. Because uh, guess ABB what? ABB is the biggest one because all the temperature and a lot of the weather is yeah. definitely the biggest impact. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it today. And from the great state of Georgia, the place that nobody except foreigners call Hotlanta, and mean foreigners, people that are not from Atlanta. Nobody from Atlanta calls yeah. it Hotlanta, but I call it Hotlanta. From Atlanta, Georgia, Mike Pink from Smart PM Technologies. Uh, Mike, how's it going today? Oh, everything's going well on my end. How about yourself? Doing really well. Just enjoying the uh, Thanksgiving break coming up and uh, excited about all of the fun and eating that's going to take place next week. Super excited about that. <laughs> so for all you who are going out hunting, enjoy it and just keep looking for them gobble gobbles and go get you some dinner. Before we get back to you, Mike, uh, just a, a word for all those people that are viewing online or are watching on our illustrious, amazing video channel, Vimeo, which is five million times better than YouTube because YouTube sucks. We would love for you to subscribe to our podcast. <laughs> I'm not going to ever let go of this. Yeah, I heard that Joe Rogan left YouTube as well. I mean, that's a no way. Yeah, that's a condemnation. Looking this up. So, uh, yeah. Uh, that's what I heard. We'll see. For those of you who are watching on video, text CONTACT to 66866. That's CONTACT to 66866. And you can subscribe to our weekly email newsletter with all the news articles we talk about, and links to everything, and then uh, show notes. And then you can listen to the show. Um, you can also subscribe on any of your podcast apps. If you have any questions during the show, I have a Google Voice number that goes straight to my phone. We would love to hear from you. So if you just text 979-473-9040, 979-473-9040 to hit me up with the questions or to dial in. Last week, we had a dialing guest, left a voicemail, and we played it on the air and answered his questions, had some discussions. So you can be on the show. Just dial in. There's thousands of you out there. Uh, come on in. We'd love to see you. And uh, 
to my to my dialing guest from last week asking that we go and bring a road show to Orlando or Tampa. I hate to break it to you. We're not coming to Florida next year. We're not coming to Florida at the road show. We're going to go to a lot of other cool cities. So we uh, we hope to see you at there. Before we get started with our discussion with Mike Pink from Smart PM, a quick word. And this is super cool. They had a big announcement this week. That they rebranded from Link to Dato. So uh, a conversation I had with the CEO and co-founder of Dato, Mr. Jake Olson. And I'm here with Jake Olson, the co-founder and CEO of Dato. Jake, tell me about Dato. What is it all about? What do you guys do? Some people have called us the Google for construction, which at its core, Dato is a search engine. Uh, what makes it different from Google is that we understand construction. So, for example, Dato understands that AHU is an acronym for air handling unit, or Dato can understand the difference between a shop drawing and a contract drawing. But what makes it really interesting, what the users really love, is the simple voice user interface. So users of Dato can ask a question like, show me the mechanical equipment schedule, and we instantly pull up, or Dato pulls up, not only the mechanical sheet that's got the equipment schedule, but submittals for mechanical equipment, specs, sections related, all of that in one simple search. So uh, the users really like the simple use and the kind of the powerful construction-based search. And we're back with our very special guest, Mike Pink of Smart PM Technologies out of Atlanta, Georgia. Mike, thanks again for joining us on the show. It's been a while since you've been on. How you been? I've been doing very well. Um, been been keeping my head down, trying to continue to uh, further advance our technology, but all is well. I think the last time I was on was probably two or three years ago, wasn't it? It has been a while since we've seen you. And so it's uh, it's good to see you again. Good to have you back on the show. So uh, why don't you just tell me what's been going on with Smart PM? Uh, what's been going on with you? since the last time we had you on? Well, actually, since the last time we were on, I believe we've completely pivoted our entire product. <laughs> so we've changed everything, James. That's just technology for you, right? Oh, yeah. You know, the last time we talked, um, you know, my product, our company product was essentially a data collection and analytics tool that leveraged project schedules to um, you know, deliver information out to the field of what they should be working on and letting the field send back what they did work on all while building what, what we call a, a uh, an as-built schedule of work, uh, leveraging daily reports and schedule technology. But since then, uh, we, had a, we had a difficult time getting the industry to embrace that, that sort of process. Uh, so what we've moved on to is more uh, automated analytics using data that's available. So instead of reinventing the wheel of how to collect and associate data uh, in, internally on a, on a project, we have now plugged into various systems to understand that data, leveraging the schedule as the foundation uh, of all of our analytics. So that's really the big change uh, that we've had in our organization since the last time I was on the show. Yeah, and uh, to be clear, it was episode 11. You are an OG. You're an original gangsta because that was Contact Trio days. And it was episode 11. It was a long time ago. So now the, the disruption of your product is what? It's a project analytics solution, right? That's, that's really, exactly. that's really yeah. what you market this as. So it's much more about analytics than about the scheduling tech that, that it was in the past. So uh, let's, let's just 
for people who weren't here back in the day and, and didn't listen to episode 11, because uh, obviously uh, we're in episode number 196 now, it's been a minute. Uh, tell tell everybody, you know, where were you born and raised and what led you into construction and construction tech? Yeah, oh, good, good question. Uh, I was born and raised actually in New York. Um, I lived up there and I ended up going to school down at Georgia Tech, which is really where my roots are now in Atlanta. I graduated with an industrial engineering degree uh, about 20 years ago. Industrial engineers are generally, it's a different kind of engineers. People at Georgia Tech call them imaginary engineers, but essentially an industrial engineer is a optimization and efficiency major. Somebody who finds breakdowns in processes for businesses or organizations and helps improve those to improve bottom lines. So I went to school for that. Um, I was supposed to get into supply chain and manufacturing and that sort of thing, at least I thought. Uh, but my first job offer out of school was a construction consultant. Uh, and back in the day, 20 years ago, a construction consultant was essentially a, a forensic analyst, uh, somebody who could help piece together projects forensically to understand where time was lost and dollars were spent. So I spent all that time understanding how to reconstruct construction projects from the data perspective. So that was my background. Awesome. And what do you love about what you're doing now? Like you, you had this big pivot. You've evolved the company over the last three years. First off, how's the pivot gone, right? You, you always have to ask that question. You pivoted the company. How's it going? And secondly, uh, what do you love best about it? Well, the pivot's gone great. I mean, it was a necessary thing. Uh, back a, a few years ago, uh, I mean, I was pouring my heart and soul into a product without actually having really dug deep into the minds of and souls of the people in the industry. I, I took my 20 years of experience and came up with a concept and went out and tried to sell it. And I saw that it wasn't anything anybody wanted to buy, uh, but I wasn't going to give up. Uh, I knew that the analytics that I did as a consultant were heavily sought after. Uh, I just didn't understand how to bring it to the industry. So it was brought to the industry through automation. And and to be quite honest with you, that's I, I love where we're at. Um, the automation is something that makes sense retrospectively because everybody's so busy in construction, asking them to do one more thing uh, to collect data. It was it was a um, it was a big ask. Uh, but ever since we've automated so much, of these analytics plugging into the various systems, things have changed. Uh, but really more importantly, the thing I love most about what we've done is we've actually done what I should have done five years ago and a deep dive uh, of customer discovery, uh, where we started to understand, you know, what the people in the industry think about, you know, data delay overruns and why they happen and what would be helpful. Uh, we've also talked to people on the owner's side, talked to people on the construction side. We talked to people uh, in an in insurance company and banks, people on the site, people, you know, in, in, in corporate offices, all to get an understanding of the, you know, a full 360 view of their opinion of things that we're trying to fix, which is delays, overruns, disputes. Uh, so I've, I've enjoyed it. And our business has really done a lot better since that pivot. Awesome. That's great, man. So tell us what you see as the big problem. And, you know, cause we, I, I talk about this a lot of my speeches that often in technology where, you know, solutions in search of a problem, we have to, we have to, you know, pivot our solutions. So they actually solve real problems. What's the number one problem that you're really solving right now that you've identified? Well, most of the time there's a lot of opinions as to why things are happening. 
uh, why why problems are occurring. The one thing that's true about construction is that nothing ever goes as planned and it usually costs more money and time. And most of the time people argue over it. That's the problem that <laughs> I saw and that I was fixing as a consultant. Uh, but really the problem that we're fixing now as a consultant is giving those level of analytics to people who need them, uh, who need them in real time. There's a lot of discussions about risk. There's a lot of discussions about you know, things not going well. There's a lot of opinions as to why, but usually there's only one reason and or a few reasons that are you can pinpoint through analytics and they quite often differ from opinions uh, because people in construction don't have the time uh, or spend the money to do the level of analytics that are necessary and it's because it's expensive and time consuming. Uh, so the problem that we're solving is giving visibility and clarity and transparency into what does the data mean holistically for the projects that we're on. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, James Hillegas. Something that caught my eye on your website, Mike, was the transparent pricing. And most companies, you know, make you either fill out like a web form and say, give us your email or something to get it. One, why did you do that? And are there truly no hidden lines with, you know, size of the job, number of users, all the other kinds of ways that people will price their technology? Yeah. Uh, thanks for asking that question. Um, we were very transparent because you know, when we weren't transparent, it people just assumed we were really expensive. Um, I don't believe that we're very expensive, uh, particularly coming from the world that I came from, where we were being paid, you know, three hundred dollars an hour for months at a time to analyze data. Um, now we're we're essentially giving that same level of analytics for about three hundred dollars a month uh, or four hundred dollars a month, depending on which tier. Uh, we also wanted to show that there's different tiers and different levels because our product spans um, different capabilities. You know, we sell to people who have never ever really studied schedules in their life and we do it in a smart way and we give a, uh, a tier for that. And then we also sell our tool to people who have studied schedules their entire life and give them the ability to do things that they never could do before with this, with this information. So that's really why we want to be very transparent with that. Um, you had asked the second part to that question. What was that again? The second part was just, are there truly no hidden fine print or hidden, hidden agenda, like size of the job, number of users, you know, revenue, all that other kind of stuff on how people typically price products in the industry? Yeah. Thanks again for asking that question. There's, we have a, a, a very nominal training fee. Um, it's not a hidden fee. It's just if we're going to fly out to your office and spend a day with you, we're going to ask for a little bit of money for doing that. So that's one additional fee, but it's not like, uh, uh, hey, well, by the way, it's 20 grand for a training. Uh, no, it's nothing like that at all. And then, yes, we also do have um, on large projects. So, you know, I, I judged a project by the size of the actual schedule because we follow uh, a schedule centric analytics model. Yeah, if it's a giant project, if it's over 5,000 activities in a schedule, we basically charge you as if that was another project, um, like two projects at 10,000 and three projects at 15. And we do have a project-based pricing model, which is a little bit different uh, than the, than I've seen. Gotcha. And one of the things that seems using Smart PM is it requires other systems to be in place to be fully leveraged. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's definitely a fair statement. The, the minimum need for smart PM to be utilized successfully is um, a scheduling program, uh, managing a, a project with a scheduling program. And that can be any scheduling program, mainly probably P6 and Microsoft Project being the two main ones, maybe Smartsheets. Yeah, we solely focus on Microsoft Project and P6 right now. We haven't had 
anybody really ask for anything other than that. We do have a few that have used Asta or Phoenix scheduling program, which can convert to a XER file, which is P6's database file. So we just convert and import or allow them to convert and import. Gotcha. That makes sense. James? Yeah. So we've seen uh, some analytic suites come out recently for Procore, and we're actually going to talk about that more in, in just a second because how, how this compares and contrasts with with what Procore Analytics is doing and, and just the role that analytics plays in in modern project management because this is, this is really a new concept to a lot of contractors. They're still trying to get their hands around digitizing their, their contractual documents. Uh, that's right. <laughs> much, much less actually analyzing all the data, but we're going to jump into that in just a second. Really quick, another uh, another segment from my discussion with Jake Olson from Dato. Now, you weren't always called Dato. In fact, I knew you as another name until recently. Why did you change your name to Dato? Yeah, we started off as a name of Link, which is really just a placeholder. Now that we've got a good founding team in place and we've got what we think is a pretty powerful and exciting product, we decided it was time to spend a little effort on actually naming the company. And we really love the name Dato. It's a woodworking joinery term. So basically a Dato is a cut across the grain of wood and you use it to join two pieces of, of wood together. And the symbolism is, is good for Dato, our product, because we kind of cut across all the data silos that your project data lives on, join it together at one simple interface. There's also a little acronym in there, DATO, as in data and document optimization, so you can kind of pick up on that. But we're excited with the name. We just announced it at Autodesk University. We've got everything kind of rebranded now, so we're uh, officially DATO uh, as we launch our product. Awesome. So I love the play on words, certainly on uh, on woodworking, uh, but also on uh, on data. That's, uh, that's really great and inappropriate. So uh, it's, a, it's an exciting name change. So you, you had some other big announcements at Autodesk University. We announced the name change, um, the new features. So other documents, we have an automatic sync feature now. So you can basically connect data to the folder somewhere and we just keep it up to date. A bunch of new tablet features, which are cool with markups and binders. But yeah, the big announcement is we've launched the products. So um, we've got a new website projectdato.com. Reach out to us if, you've, if you're swimming in a sea of folders and, and data overload or digital divide resonates with you. We'd love to give you a demo, talk to you about what it would take to get data set up in your company. So we've seen more solutions come out. First off, we had Construction BI that was really a platform built on top of Power BI. So it's Microsoft Power BI customized for Procore data. And then uh, Procore uh, acquires Construction BI, calls it Procore Analytics. You've got a significant amount of, of uh, marketing literature out there for your integration with Procore for contractors, Procore for owners. Uh, what are you providing that they're not already providing with their analytics suite? Sure. Um, one thing that most, actually, I, I don't see too many other tools doing is basically digesting the schedule. Um, one thing that I had learned throughout my career as a person who was hired to forensically analyze jobs was that um, the schedule had the most useful data. Uh, and the reason it has the most useful data is because it basically explains how everything's interrelated to one master plan. Uh, the the logical relationships in those those schedules are something that no other system has the ability to analyze. Uh, for example, if you're trying to study cost overruns in construction, 
you have to look at cost systems. And, you know, if you break it up by WBS, you just see a bunch of um, organizational structures with plan versus actual cost. But what you don't understand is how does one um, one line item relate to another line items overrun? Uh, all of that's explained in the schedule. So really how we differentiate ourselves, and I, I spoke of a schedule-centric model, that logic and that schedule really explains how's everything inter interrelated, how does ripple effects happen, who caused what problem to what other um, entity in this project, which is really what everybody argues about. It's things take more time, they cost more money, uh, there's some reason for it, and everybody argues about that reason. The answers are in the schedule. Uh, so that's really how we differentiate ourselves. No other systems out there study schedules um, to the level that we do. And, and, and really, with our product, we focused on the areas where people need the most help. Uh, another thing that scheduling programs don't provide or analytical programs don't provide is even assessment of how well a schedule is constructed um, in a systematic way. Uh, you know, if somebody's using Primavera or Microsoft Project, they can build a schedule. Uh, they can build a terrible schedule and the program will just say, here's your schedule. They won't say it's a terrible schedule. You shouldn't use this schedule on a large projects because it's missing all sorts of logic. Um, so what we do is we, we, we focus on quality. And once you focus on quality, we're able to focus on performance, which is in terms of delay, uh, delays and mitigations. And then we also focus on um, whether or not a schedule is feasible. Uh, that's another big issue out there. I think more and more tools are coming out that are able to look at data analytics of schedules in mass to understand forecasting. But, you know, we're looking at historical performance on a specific job to understand what does it mean for the future of the job. And then eventually we will be getting into a little bit more AI and machine learning here. But um, that's really how we differentiate. I don't see any other PM systems out there trying to study schedules to the level that we are. Yeah. And, and this is an interesting concept across all of technology, across all industrial sectors is the move from uh, triage analytics to predictive analytics. You know, historically reporting like crystal reports or, uh, you know, uh, SQL Server reporting services, or you know, na name a reporting package. You're basically taking historical data, slicing, dicing it, trying to find uh, correlation and causality. And, and something I say very often to my clients is uh, correlation does not equal causality. Just because two events are correlated doesn't mean one caused the other. Uh, so you, you've got to you've got to really look at that when you're building a report on project performance. Is okay, these two things happened. Like uh, <laughs> for example, let's say we had a successful project and James Hillegas was the superintendent on it. He wore his uh, his camo Hoyt hat every day that he wore that Hoyt hat. They were on schedule, and every day that he wore uh, his Ohio State Buckeyes hat, it went off schedule. <clears throat> that just because those are correlated doesn't mean that the that one caused the other. Although an argument could be made that uh, a Buckeyes hat would cause a schedule to go off track. But I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> but, but no, no, no. The this two are correlated. Such a bad example. It's just a random example. The two are correlated, but there's not causality. And, and historically in analytics, that's where we looked, right? We looked backwards and said, hey, okay, let's triage what happened. Now the push in analytics is to look forward and say, okay, based on historical data, here's a model that we're going to apply to our current today data and then predict an outcome. That's really much more helpful in in steering you know away from the ditch before you actually hit the ditch. 
right? And and uh, you know, historically, reporting's been about, hey, why'd we hit that ditch back there? Oh, we hit another ditch. Hey, why'd we hit that one? Oh, we hit another one. Why'd we hit that one? Instead of saying, hey, there's a ditch coming up. And that's really that 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 really is where machine learning comes in because machine learning and its subset deep learning, which are all subsets of artificial intelligence, allow us to run billions of permutations and try and find correlation and causality. You said that's coming up, so you're not really right. you're not doing deep learning machine learning yet, but you are trying to build an expert system that can help assign probabilities to future outcomes. Absolutely. Yeah. Now we've already started the process. We do have some very early stage predictive analytics built into our um, program, which are helpful. But with any technology, you got to start somewhere and you've got to, you know, continue to progress and, and, and make it better over time. So we do have a predictive analytics engine. We do leverage some you know, slight machine learning, but not to the levels that we anticipate in the future. Uh, but one of the reasons that's the case is because the way that I've always looked at it is without understanding quality and, and, and fixing that first, you have to make sure that quality is there for a schedule to, to work. Um, so that's the first thing we looked at was how do we leverage scheduled data to help people better understand quality? Uh, and and quality is not are the durations accurate? The quality is how well is this schedule structured and is it is the user following best practices to 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 prepare and and manage a schedule? Um, once you get past that, you can then look at performance, um, performance, historical performance, and study plan versus actual over time. Um, and really, that's a function of progress and delay uh, and impacts and causation and all that. Um, but that's really those two things are required to actually do well on the predictive side. Um, so that's really why we've had to stage it that way. And we've done our phase one. We are getting into a lot more analytics and we were also hoping to wait till we had, you know, thousands of schedules to leverage, you know, across many different types of projects, because that's going to be one aspect. Uh, the other aspect is going to be the data embedded in a single project, which is something that we've already started. Awesome. James Hilgis. So I'm kind of open to interesting can of worms when it comes to building a quality schedule, can you go a little more in depth of like, are you skipping things? Are you, you know, placing, you know, I don't know, op windows in walls before walls are framed? Like, can you help understand like, what do you, are you referring to when you say a quality schedule? Right now? No, we're not saying, we're not looking at a schedule saying, look, uh, you're putting in walls before floors or, or walls before HVAC. Um, we can't do that yet. We need a lot more schedules to be able to do that. We need a lot more advancement in our artificial intelligence and our machine learning to be able to do that. So right now we're solely focused on, are you following, you know, best practices and best practices and scheduling is basically, are you, are you putting in enough logic? Uh, do you have enough activities? Is there enough detail? You know, if you have a bunch of activities with missing logic, all the total floats are off and all the critical paths are off. If you have too many activities that are like, you know, months long durations, there's, they're a lot harder to status as a percent complete, as well as there's a high likelihood that if they are misstatused, um, they could take over the critical path and then your critical path is off again and people don't know what to focus on to manage to a specific end date. Um, and then there's other things like too many constraints. You know, that's like not having enough logic. Your, your scheduler is determining before it's even happened when something's going to start with a constraint or a finished constraint or a bunch of them in a schedule will throw in a bunch of negative float numbers so you won't even know what the true critical path slash longest path of the job is. So there's about 14 or 15 different 
indicators uh, in, in different ways of looking at those indicators to determine if a schedule has been built well. Uh, and then one other thing that I'll point out is that's not my, it's not all like, what's my opinion. There's certain indicators and there's certain risk thresholds. So what we allow our customers to do is determine a grading structure based on those, their risk thresholds, which with those indicators so that they can systematize. Uh, and what actually comes with that quality metric, that grade uh, is a training module that allows the people who actually don't do this very often or in, in the learning process of scheduling to grade themselves and see why their grade was affected um, by some of these bad practices. Um, so that's really how we do it. Gotcha. And we've seen a couple AI producing scheduling softwares and some have pivoted away from AI because of the heart, the challenge of getting adoption because of the black box, black box nature of AI. So if I was to generate a, actually back up for a second, you said earlier that schedules were pretty logical based, you know, A before B, B before C, C and D at the same time, that kind of thing. When schedules, if they ever do get generated by AI, does a lot of that logic get kind of misconstrued because it's kind of hard to figure out why certain decisions were made to produce that schedule? Well, the way I look at it is AI is going to have to leverage not only the schedule, but the design. Um, if you're going to effectively use AI uh, in construction to generate schedules and update schedules, um, you know, with, with actual mitigation strategies that work, you're going to need a lot of different pieces and parts. First, you're going to need a, a whole lot of schedules. And with those schedules, you're going to need to differentiate what kind of projects are they and what do these activities represent? Uh, and, you know, in a scheduling program, yes, maybe you can you can look at the words and the activity ID and correlate the, those. But what I understand in the industry, there's so much, so many different ways of naming things, doing things, uh, so many different practices, so many good and bad schedules. There needs to be a measure for quality to make sure that you're getting good quality of the data you're analyzing. You have to have consistency amongst the, the types of projects, the size of the projects. And really, I think that the one thing that's going to be necessary to actually do a good job with AI is for there to be some sort of um, connection to the design uh, so that the program knows exactly what you're talking about. You know, you've got this activity here. It's 10 days. It's called X. But what are you actually talking about? Um, I think that that's going to be required to do that very well. No, I, I definitely agree. And it's one of the challenges in construction in general is, you know, <clears throat> walls are pretty common across the country, no studs. You know, some kind of sheathing if it's outside, some kind of AVB. But the challenge in making a template as a contractor is every architect, even if it's the same general type of construction, the wall is called something different. It's a different wall type. You know, it's got a little bit, you know, there's obviously, you know, basically it's a checkbox. You want a wall. Studs, yes. Check the size. You know, insulation, yes, no. You know, RC channel, yes, no. All that kind of stuff. But everything is named slightly different. So it's very hard to, you know, make those systems kind of work. I agree with that point. Yeah, it's an, it's interesting. And uh, James uh, Hillegas, I appreciate you bringing up the fact that there's been some pivots outside of this and uh, AI scheduling. If you, you know, one of one of the the technologies we've talked about a good bit before was Alice, uh, which was a scheduled generation, and and even they have. If you look at the the way they reshaped their marketing language, uh, their first statement is we take the experience of your staff and then combine it with analytics of, <laughs> you know, so you have this this. Uh, this uh, emphasis on the the obvious that human experience still really matters, and by the way, will always really matter. And Mike, I know you agree with that. That all these tools are 
are great, but you still have to have quality people building jobs and producing schedules and, and understanding local conditions. And, you know, what, how does my city handle permitting and inspections? What, what are my subcontractors like? What, what, how do they behave? What, what are the common vacations? You know, you have all these, the human factor of building that makes it so complex, right? And uh, it's our job as technologists to try and design a tool that they can use to make humans better, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree with that 100%. I, I think that to that point before, you know, you can build things different ways. Um, now, if you can look at a thousand projects and see, you know, maybe some sort of commonalities in order based on maybe the names, but you really do need to understand how are these buildings or structures alike and how are they different? Definitely always going to need to be humans involved on the construction side specifically um, and, and, and coming up with the methodology and the, um, the process for which you want to build that building um, can be different. And it's, you know, that, that in and of itself is essentially a trade secret secret. We've talked to a lot of contractors out there that are very concerned with their scheduled data being out in the cloud, particularly because of how they build things that that's a trade secret. So yeah, absolutely always need that because there's going to be a competitive edge based on how you do build things. And that's only in the minds of the people who are building things. Oh, well said, well said, sir. On that note, uh, we're going to, we're going to roll to our news. And we, of course we want you to stay around for the news section of the show. Uh, if people have, uh, you know, requests for information, they want to find out more about smart PM, uh, they would go to smartpmtech.com. S-M-A-R-T-P-M-T-E-C-H dot com. Um, Mike, any other place they can go for information? Uh, no, our website's the best place to go. If there's any information, other information out there, we do put some content on LinkedIn. We do have a, uh, a blog. Uh, if there's ever any information you need about this subject matter, we, we speak a lot about analytics. That's great. Well, thanks for joining us. We're going to keep you on for the news. Let's uh, Let's roll into that discussion. But before we do... A quick word from David Sumbrio, our consulting manager, about our new sponsor, Construction Dive. Can't wait until next week for more Contech news from the Contech crew? Get your fix from Construction Dive. Construction Dive has the scoop on the Contech news all day, every day. Stop by constructiondive.com slash crew to get the latest construction news in your inbox. Again, that's constructiondive.com slash C-R-E-W. For when you just can't wait for the next episode of the Contact Crew to know what's going on in the construction geekosphere. Awesome. And on to you, Mr. Hillegas. What you got this week? I got a couple articles, uh, two of them from Construction Dive. The first two. Uh, first one is going over the an on-site, an inside look at the Mortensen-McCarthy $1.9 billion, with a B, Raiders Stadium in Vegas. The first thing... That's impressive is just the statistics of the building, which I'll quickly read through. 65,000 seats, which is less than the Horseshoe in Columbus. 1.7 million square feet venue. 895,000 cubic yards of dirt. 12 miles of concrete drilled shafts. Miles of piping. 19 cranes. 28,000 28, tons of steel. And some other numbers. But the schedule that spends $2 million a day is on schedule and on budget for July 31st and is probably what will be a future case study for leveraging technology in construction uh, for a job that size because you know most of them of that scale do tend to go over 
one of the one, if not two, of those project limiters. What are your thoughts, James? Oh man, I got a, I got a lot of them. First off, uh, let's let's uh, call out some really great tech companies that are helping this uh, achieve its goal. Procore, Matterport, Autodesk, Revisto. Uh, they're they're also using Dusty Robotics, Leica, EarthCam. I mean, this this really is project scheduling. Primavera P6. Uh, and again, Mike, uh, you're, you're seeing this, by the way, our, our 2019 contact reports coming out in a few weeks. And yet again, Primavera Microsoft project still at the top, buddy. They're still using, uh, you know, the, the, the two standbys. The, the point is they leveraged a ton of technology, weekly drone flights, laser scanning for in-wall inspections. I mean, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a contact, uh, extravaganza, uh, even if it is a small stadium, Right. I mean, this is a this is an expensive stadium. It's a high end stadium. Uh, but like the horseshoe, it's kind of small. And so <laughs> I'm just messing with you. I just got a Raz in Ohio State. It's got to be a little SEC Ohio State action. You know, Texas A&M seats 104,000. That's beside the point. This is going to be a far high, more high end stadium than Kyle Field. I mean, this thing is crazy, crazy, crazy. Um, it looks like an interplanetary spaceship. Uh, it's got you know retractable roof. I mean, but but uh, I think your point is spot on, uh, James. That uh, this technologically is a really shining example of of uh, all the different tools that have come together to deliver uh, a hell of a finished product, and apparently, hopefully, um, an on time product. And you know why they have they've got to deliver for that July thirty, you know why they got because they got to get in there. I mean, they got to have a game. So I mean, they got preseason games in August. So uh, that's going to be uh, that's going to be a tight deadline, but it's a big deal. Uh, Mike, you gotta uh, you you gotta be excited as a scheduling geek. You gotta be excited excited about an on time schedule. Yeah, absolutely. The one thing I will question is is it actually on time or is it just what the schedules say? Um, that's one big question that everybody always asks. Well, that's a insight. You just unhinged my brain on that one. Why don't you unpack that for everybody? Sure. Well, one of the biggest challenges that we see and we've see it all the time now is, you know, a lot of times schedules say one thing and the data says another. Back to our discussions about historical performance. Um, historical performance is a great indicator of future performance, as we talked about before. Problem is, most of the time that's not embedded in scheduling technologies. Primavera Microsoft Project will allow you to make changes, will allow you to shorten durations, will allow you to pull out logic and then it basically says look here's what we're going to do now it doesn't say wait a second is that is that possible based on what we've learned so far um so that's really one big thing that that the industry's challenged with is over optimism uh making decisions on the fly in the field using the schedule as your system to make those decisions to relay back out to the field uh but not actually sitting down and working with everybody to determine if those decisions are accurate. Uh, and one of the reasons that's the issue is because um, people don't have time to do that. They don't have time to have mitigation planning meetings every single day or every single week or even every single month. So lots of times decisions are made um, on the fly in schedules to keep things, quote, on track, but they haven't actually been understood as to whether that's feasible or whether the schedule's getting overly compressed, or whether if you extrapolate performance history on this future schedule, if that actually means we're still getting done on time. Uh, not to say that it's not gonna get done on time, 
Uh, I think that more needs to be thought through and history needs to be understood and the schedule needs to be uh, dissected a little bit to ensure that that's actually true. There you go. Thank you. Excellent insight. James, what do you got next? Some good old dark art of schedule manipulation. <laughs> I think we're going to re- rename this show to the Pot Shot Show. <laughs> it's the Ohio State Pot Shot Show. I mean, I got to take pot shots. I'm a little jealous, you know. The Big Ten has made some really big improvements, and they're they're a legit contender now. So it's probably born out of jealousy. That's beside the point. What what's up? Uh, what, right. I, I, I'm, I'm excited. You have some Texas news next. I was just about, you took my opening line. That's what I was going to use my opener. Golly. <laughs> so uh, another another article from Construction Dive, Texas DOT halted or stops construction of the $800 million FIG designed Harbor Bridge. So the, the biggest takeaway is basically from this one was the National Transportation Safety Board last month named FIG design errors as the probable cause of the deadly March 2018 pedestrian bridge collapse at Florida International. You know, there's not a whole lot of tech in related in this, you know, article, but it's more or less to address the, you know, what we actually do on a daily basis and the, the bigger picture beyond just, you know, the decisions that we make and the roles that we all take part of in the industry and how it actually has a bigger impact beyond just the technology and, and the ROI of, of you know, lives are on the line and, you know, in construction specifically. Yeah, this is a, an interesting one. FIG and the NTSB have been going back and forth. By the way, down here in the great state of Texas, we call it TexDOT. TexDOT. Because TexDOT releases a ridiculous amount of work. <laughs> so everybody knows mm-hmm. uh, what it's about. Uh, this, this has been an interesting battle to go back and forth on. And there is a lot of technology that's being used for the forensics and analysis on this particular uh, bridge failure, both from the video and obviously laser scan analysis. There's a lot of stuff they're using. Uh, but FIG issued a statement and they said, it wasn't us. Uh, the construction crews didn't rough in cold joints at Nodal Region 11 and 12 as the fundamental cause. They blamed it on the construction crew. The NTSB addressed the issue and said that even roughening uh, those cold joints would not have prevented the bridge collapse. And so the NTS, it's almost like they anticipated Fig saying that, and, and in their report they dealt with this. So uh, this is look, fundamentally when you're uh, as involved in this as Fig was, you're going to suffer some consequences. And this is obviously one of them. I would imagine they're going to go back and, uh, and uh, reanalyze all of the, all the work that they did and make sure they're not going to have a, a, a massive bridge collapse. Cause this is the largest bridge in Southern Texas, which means it's big, it's a big bridge. And so, uh, cause everything's bigger in Texas the way it is big state, 28 million people, $1.6 trillion GDP. <laughs> Excellent football teams. <clears throat> it is the pot. What, what are we going to call this? Uh, what are we going to What are we going to call this show? I can't call it the Pot Shot Show. We, we got to call it something else. We'll figure it out. We'll, we'll figure it we'll out. Figure it out. We'll figure it out. All right. What else you got, Bud? Last article is from TransportationTodayNews.com. This is from my backyard, which Hyperloop Transportation Technologies finds Great Lakes project feasible and profitable. So over the past, for I think it's been going on for almost a year, if not more, there's basically been a feasibility study going on that would pre- create a hyperloop between Cleveland, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And there was a meeting in Cleveland on, if I recall, I'm pretty sure it was Monday, to kind of discuss the studies of the findings. 
They basically, a uh, recent survey determined in the Midwest it could be installed with operational costs that require no subsidies, create more than 900,000 jobs over 25 years, and decrease carbon emissions by millions of tons and inject billions of dollars into the regional economy. Very interesting article. Big round numbers like 900,000 makes me think people just made it up, but that's <laughs> just me being a little bit skeptical because it's a pretty large number for just putting a train in between you know, three cities, which I get you can you know live in Cleveland now and work in Chicago if you can theoretically get there in a fraction of the time. But it is you know very interesting because Cleveland is basically a flyover city between Chicago and New York, which is why our airport is so daggone small, because no one's going to put another airport between you know Chicago and New York. Yeah. Do, do you really think I, I agree with you on the job numbers. That sounds like something that an economic development corporation uh, board of directors would release, you know, after some gross overestimation. But <laughs> you know, when I went to China, I went to China a few years ago for a construction conference out in Xi'an, which is in Western China. And they have bullet trains all over the place. And I, I got to tell you, whenever I, whenever I go to Europe and I ride their high-speed rail and I go to, I go to Asia and ride their high-speed rail, I'm going, man, what are we doing? Now, first off, commute on a Hyperloop ain't no way that someone's going to, unless they're making a lot of money, is going to pay that fare. Because, you know, even the commute that they're, they're trying to get a high-speed rail in right now between Houston and, and Dallas, and uh, it's a Japanese corporation who's trying to publicly, oh, sorry, privately fund this, and they're running into enormous hurdles with all the farmers and ranchers they're trying to declare eminent domain on so they can build their railroad track because they can't build it on the regular railroad track because it's it's too windy and bendy it doesn't work right you know for high speed rail and for hyperloops they've got to be much straighter longer stretches uh than the current rail has and so the the route that they planned in texas they even said they would elevate the majority of it james elevate between dallas and houston that is a hundreds of miles of elevated rail and, and they said we'll elevate it and if you look at pictures of elevated uh, railway in europe and asia uh cows love it because they kind of cluster under the under the railway because they get some shade during the day and and so you think well the cows will be happy and the farmer can still drive across his land but he doesn't you know he's had that land in his family for hundreds of years so i think any talk about hyperloops or high-speed rail in america get really tied up in property rights, eminent domain discussions, et cetera. But from a technological perspective, this is a very efficient way to move people very, very quickly. And it, I I would be sad 30 years from now if we still haven't built some significant high-speed rail here. So, one, does a Hyperloop have to be above or can it also just be below? I mean... I thought it could also be below. Well, you can, you can bury it, but I mean... Mike Pink, do you believe Elon Musk's uh, estimates on the cost for his boring machine? Do you really believe those when you look at his schedule and cost analysis that he's put out there on on the tunnels he wants to dig under LA? Not really. Um, I think that they're again a little over optimistic. Yeah, like I I love Musk uh, in that he pushes everybody to think way outside of normal, right? And so when you think of hyperloops and I mean this is the ultimate in technology, right? You're you're revolutionizing the way people move around. Uh, you're not worried about weather. It's an in, a fully enclosed tunnel, so it, you're not dealing with all the noise issues. But you're either going to have to build it at grade, above grade, or below grade. It's got to go somewhere. 
And at grade, you've got all kinds of grade crossing issues. Above grade, you have to build a multi-hundred or multi-thousand mile elevated surface, which is not cheap. And then below grade, I've just... I, you look at all the major tunnel construction projects around the world that we've talked about on this show and talked about elsewhere, James. I haven't seen a single damn one that's on time and on budget. You know, they, well, they always hit, they hit like Seattle where they hit a giant ice age boulder underground. They can't grind through, right? I mean, that's like stuff happens. This is a whole nother rabbit hole, but I'll end it with this is one. Are we too late in the development of the U S to put one in because of property rights? And then two, in construction, I mean, most of your risk is just getting out of the ground. I mean, because, you know, you take soil borings, but they're sporadic and, you know, you happen to miss that boulder, you know, SOL by the time you get to it. I would actually, that's something Mike can look into. I mean, how many construction projects go out because of the underground work versus the above ground stuff? I would say that um, groundwork is your first major impact on every project. I mean, underground um, obstructions, rain, weather, uh, it's always something that's, that's discussed, always something that's argued, um, always a problem, uh, on most projects. Now, perfect example, uh, in line with this would be the second Avenue bridge and or second Avenue tunnel in New York. They've been trying to build that thing since 1946. I think it just can't happen. There's too much too much uncertainty, too many dollars and, and the uncertainties and what's under there and what's going to happen and what happens if, if, if a disaster strikes, right? Like a, a building falls. Um, I know that this is different there in Texas, but again, you know, the underground uncertainty is always a major cost and predicting that is nearly impossible. Um, so I would actually think personally that probably would be cheaper to build it above ground, uh, obviously at grade may be impossible. I actually think that the, the, the best route that will end up being close, closest to schedule and budget would be, um, above ground, Elevated. uh, you yeah. know, across the, the, the great state of Texas. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I think elevated, uh, or the Republic of Texas. We'll take that too, by the way. Um, <laughs> it, it'll, I think it'll take that. I think it's going to take an elevated surface because then you don't have to deal with grade crossings. You're not dealing with underground infrastructure as much. You're dealing with pilings. I mean, you're still going to go underground. You're just not going to go underground like a tunnel boring machine is. I, I don't I don't know. I don't know if I believe the boring company. Uh, as Eli, I love that he called his company the boring company uh, and then sold flamethrowers <laughs> to crowdfund things. But um, I, I, uh, I just don't think it's going to be quite the, uh, quite the spectacle uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see, bud. We'll see. It, it usually it's bureaucracy that gets in the way on this one. Uh, Europe just was much, much more heavy handed with their, uh, railway acquisition and the, uh, you know, cause they, they basically said no at grade crossings for their high speed rail. You know, if you ride, I, I rode the Eurostar from Paris to London under, you know, under the English channel in 1997, a couple of years after it opened. Were you, were you alive then? I guess, I guess maybe you were. I was three. Three. You were three. three. There you go. Okay. Since we, since we were joking about that earlier, <laughs> I, I was on the channel and I I uh, I remember looking and going, the tracks are seamless. We're not slowing down at all. There's no at grade crossings. Now they, it wasn't elevated. They they just buried what they did is they they ran the road under the rail or over. So they did, you know they did you know tunnels under or, or bridges over for all the uh, all the rail crossings. But that creates a problem in agricultural land because you're. You know, your cattle can't, you know, all your livestock can't move back and forth. So that's why I think 
the above grade makes the most sense. But that's a bit of a tangent. But it's still it's still uh, really interesting. This is the the ultimate uh, the ultimate pinnacle in technology is is really what Musk is doing with uh, with spaceflight and with Hyperloop transportation. We're going to move on. Hensel Phelps has been in the news a couple of times in the last week. Uh, the one I'm talking about today, and those both very positive, both about technology. Hensel Phelps, six Boston Dynamic Robotic Dog on documenting its construction job site. And, and we've we've talked about Spot, uh, the the uh, robotic dog from Boston Dynamics. They're making uh, m- you know mobile robot robots. This is Spot Walk, first of a kind robotic. And, and there's all kinds of video online of this four-legged robotic quote unquote dog controlled by an app that autonomously walks around. Uh, Hensel Phelps has actually uh, partnered with them, and they're also working with Hollow Builder. So Hollow Builder and Boston Dynamics um, are getting together and putting uh, Hollow Builder's hardware and Hollow Builder's software, and the um, it's not just Hollow Builder's hardware as well, uh, but they're putting uh, you know laser scanners and uh, vision capture systems on top of Spotwalk, and then they're uh, integrating the data so that this can actually walk around a project. Uh, the, they piloted the uh, app robot integration during the $1.2 billion project at San Francisco International Airport. And uh, with they said, and this is the exciting news for all of us in technology, they said that with just a little training, the team easily got Spot to perform reality capture. Quote, this partnership removes the time-consuming step while providing accurate construction photos with a high degree of fidelity, which is uh, really, really interesting. Uh, there's two modes. In case you'd wondered how the creepy robot dog with the snakehead, if you if you get the snakehead attachment that Jim Greenlee loves, uh, there's two modes. Uh, one teaches Spot the reality capture route. So you teach it the route first. And then the other mode makes Spot repeat the route on its own while it does image capture, in this case with Hollow Builder. And you can believe that Hollow Builder won't be the only one that goes and does this. Um, but then when you know, instead of having a human being walk around and do it, you have Spot the robot. When it runs into obstacles, it moves around the obstacles and resumes it, its route. Uh, so really, uh, really interesting. It, it is a bit of a viral sensation as well uh, because of the testing that uh, Boston Dynamics put Spot through. Uh, but they were just trying to, uh, and, and Jim, if you scroll down to the bottom, uh, that's going to be your favorite video right there. You can just play the, there you go. That's your favorite. The snake uh, head grabber on top of the robotic dog. Got to love that. So all kinds of interesting things. Um, Mike, when you've got a robotic dog with uh, full laser scanning and reality capture hardware that walks the exact same route all day and produces hourly as-builts. Is this a big deal for schedule versus actual analysis? Absolutely a huge deal. Um, if you recall when we spoke earlier and I was mentioning our previous uh, product, um, the biggest challenge that we had was people wanting to collect data. People on the site aren't data people. So this is definitely something that I think is going to change everything. Understanding really where a project's at status-wise is a challenge, um, especially if it's over-optimistic. Being able to train something to walk around and report in major details um, how far along a project really is uh, and using, you know, the actual 
uh, work in place as a measure for that. And being able to do it consistently every single day is amazing to me. Uh, the other thing that I just noticed with that um, snake-headed dog was that it could walk around and actually tell you if the site's clean enough to be efficient. Um, that would be a great value add as well. Yeah, so it's not just QAQC or uh, progress tracking. It's also job site condition analysis. And uh, it's possible. That's really, really interesting. And of course, if you watch the video that Jim's playing right now, you can also do a hell of a dance. And uh, <laughs> what's what's interesting is that it can actually open doors too. So it can it can climb upstairs, open doors. I mean, there's all kinds of really interesting stuff you can do depending on the attachments you put on this. So, uh, James, you uh, you want this over in your uh, prefab facility so you can have it move move stuff around and laser scan what's going on on your prefab. <laughs> Are you just going to use it for your install sites? We are probably just going to end up using it for the install sites, most likely. The There was a couple of people talking about the cost for the system, which I can't remember what they said. And the best comment was someone tried not to kick it over. Yeah. You know, give it the real Boston Dynamics infamous test. Yeah, the one that got him in so much trouble with PETA. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Uh, secretive energy startup backed by Bill Gates achieves solar breakthrough. Why does this matter? Because they're making... Solar freaking concrete. Solar wow. freaking concrete. Now, remember, solar freaking roadways. Remember that one? That's like three years ago for those content crew junkies i have been listening a long time. This is solar freaking concrete. This is a high-temperature solar oven, and they're making concrete with it. Wow. That's uh, amazing stuff. So uh, this is uh, called Heliogen. They're a clean energy company that emerged from stealth mode on two. I love when they say stealth mode, like they had like anti-radar stealth tactics employed. They created, now this is not a new concept. Uh, for quite a long time, they've had mirrors that focus on a single point that, uh, you know, do uh, solar thermo heating of water and all kinds of stuff, produce steam. Uh, they're using artificial intelligence. They're using machine learning and some really specific techniques to focus more light energy on a single point than has ever been produced. So this is not like uh it's not like solar panels that just that just uh capture and convert uh solar power into electricity. What they're doing is reflecting solar energy into a single point and concentrating it so high that it can actually get hot enough for commercial purposes. This is crazy. That could be used for construction materials. I mean that's that's uh that's just massive. And if it actually works, it'll be a huge deal for industrial companies like cement makers that have a constant need for very, very high temperature heat. Uh, now, of course, if the sun's not out, the gun's not out, right? Uh, so you got a, you got a little bit of a problem there. Uh, but there's a, there's a really an incredible opportunity here to significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions and uh, non-renewable fuel consumption by focusing. Uh, focusing all these points of light on one place. And they're using a lot of software and hardware motors to really, what they're doing is they're tweaking the angle of all the the uh, the mirrors in real time to focus it on as, as focused a point as possible to produce the highest uh, amount of heat possible. Uh, James, uh, come on, I know it's super geeky, but man, this is this is amazing. And we, we use a little bit of concrete in construction. This is... I mean, the biggest thing we produce is it talks about the heat required to make concrete and steel and, you know, how, you know, we, those heavy industrial processes contribute to 7% of the CO2 emissions in the world. And they do our, 
they're referring to using some type of storage system for those days, like, you know, when it is rainy or the sun isn't out, you know, to be able to continue to, you know, produce those products. So they are available for, you know, to meet the, you know, their production. I think it's incredible. And, uh, you know, the, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how they outfit, you know, current existing plants, because obviously you need the landscape to install whatever many solar panels you need or arrays you need to get the required heat that you need to power your plant. It'll be just interesting to see how that real estate process kind of works. If you know those companies are going to have to buy more real estate or, you know, reduce part of their operations to put in those solar panels or how that all is going to kind of play out. Yeah. Their, their test acreage that they put in the video is, you know, probably looks like it's like, you know, five or 10 acres of, of space, but you do have to have a lot of sunlight. And again, they're, they're using a form of artificial intelligence and an array of mirrors to really, really focus these in. Um, if you had to hand control all the motor control, it would be very, very difficult. And so that's the whole point is they're using a lot of software to uh, dynamically control the angle of every mirror so it shines the maximum amount of sunlight on a single point. It's You think of uh, taking a magnifying glass and burning up ants, which, you know, I, I think is like an indication if you're a sociopath or something, if you do that. I, I don't know. Is it? Or is that just what guys do when they're when they're when they're kids? Uh, either way, you know it's the same concept. You're focusing a lot of light on a small point, and you're setting something on fire. In this case, it's it's uh, more heat than anybody's ever done. So keep your eye on this heliogen. And if you're in the concrete or asphalt business, you might want to check it out. Moving on, robot dogs, solar concrete. The heck of a week. Let's talk about a little bit of interesting news. Uh, for the last couple of years, I have made my opinions very clear on Magic Leap. This is a uh, piece of technology that I think uh, I know has consumed billions of dollars in investor capital and has produced what I believe to be a fairly subpar augmented reality experience compared to HoloLens. Uh, one of the, my chief concerns with it uh, ever being considered for industrial usage is that it completely cuts off your uh, peripheral vision, which is a, a big issue. That's one of the beautiful things about HoloLens is that it, it completely liberates, it allows you to have complete peripheral vision while you use it, um, almost complete. Obviously, you can't see up the top part because of the, uh, the unit that's on your head. But um, Magic Leap, in an effort to continue getting more rounds of financing, because $2 billion just ain't enough to roll out a headset they have now signed over their patents to J.P. Morgan Chase as collateral uh, just months after major, a major funding push. And, and uh, folks, this is almost never good news. <laughs> I hate to break it to you. This is uh, These documents were filed with the U.S. Patent Office August 22nd, signed August 20th. It assigned 1,903, holy cow, that's a lot of patents, 1,903 patents from Magic Leap were all assigned to J.P. Morgan Chase as uh, a patent security agreement, so as collateral for uh, financing and loans, which is not a great sign. Uh, the, uh, you can imagine the only reason they would go, first off, if they would go to, to market for more funding after $2 billion of fundraising uh, is uh, if they are, are still bleeding cash like crazy. And secondly, if they're going and having to collateralize all of their patent portfolio this is, in my opinion, not a good sign for their Series D funding round. Although this was this is part of the Series D funding round. There's Alibaba, Google, Axel Springer Ventures, Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund, 
These are some of the same people that were involved in SoftBank and uh, the debacle. And and, and there, another week, by the way, of bad news uh, coming around uh, for SoftBank. WeWork just laid off 2,400 people, and that's, the I think, just the beginning. Uh, there's going to be more to come there, and some more SoftBank investments are really struggling big time. And so uh, I'm, I think this is... Um, Look, if you're a technology developer out there and you have to pick a platform, uh, Microsoft is wildly profitable. They've continued to innovate and develop. They've rolled out a phenomenal industrial-focused headset in HoloLens. In my opinion, don't waste your time with with uh, the other solutions, but this is a really interesting one since uh, we certainly covered Magically a lot in the early days, and I just don't think this is really great news. I, I want to wrap up just by some general tech news. Uh, Apple, in their latest release, and this is important because so many of their products are now used in construction tech, namely the iPad, the iPhone, the Apple Watch. These are you know, not, not nearly as much the MacBook Pro or, or the Mac line because people are still using large of their Windows PCs. But for field mobility, it's still number one. They had a buggy, buggy, buggy release. And if you didn't install their latest iOS version, uh, that was iOS 13, there were a lot of issues. I had a plethora of issues personally with my iPhone and iPad uh, from settings to memory leaks to all kinds of stuff, weird stuff, just buggy. And for a company that has like 70 years of cash on hand, you would think they could hire enough testers to get this done. But it has to do with their software development process. And so they've now acknowledged they had some very buggy releases in 12 and 13 and that they are changing their development and testing methodology for future operating systems like iOS 14 that'll be out next year to provide the ability for uh, their testers to turn off features that aren't ready for release because of the way they do um, code check-in. So uh, interesting, if you noticed that it was buggy, so did everybody else. If you had a problem with 12 and 13, so did everybody else. And Apple noticed, and they're changing their development process. So Little little side note on that one, uh, James. Did you have any issues with uh, with thirteen? Yeah, I keep getting started. To, actually, it's been driving me nuts. I declined a calendar invite the other day, oh and it keeps telling me every time I open it, we can't decline this calendar invite, and it goes off uh, all the time. It drives me nuts. Mine. Okay, so I had that one, and it will drive you absolutely bonkers. The other one I have is messages that I archive because we use. You know, we we use very, very common email hosting. Oh, there it is. So annoying. So annoying. Cannot cannot send it. I know. It's still there. Uh, messages I archive from my inbox won't go away. They'll come back. It's like zombie emails that keep coming back. I keep going, archive, 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 a hundred times. The only way to clear out your problem and mine is to delete the entire account and re-add it. Uh, they 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 released some buggy old software for iOS 13, so just be aware that you're not the only ones having this uh, this problem. Uh, there's there's a uh, there's it's uh, it's pretty stellar. Uh, another technology side note for all the listeners out there that that enjoy smart homes, I have completed my Lutron installation and it is thebomb.com. I absolutely love the Lutron home light system. I've got. Uh, 48 Lutron switches and I've got the whole house through, you know, and, and it's through any smart home product to integrate with this, whether it's 
uh, Google Home or Alexa or, um, or HomeKit. And by the way, when I look at any kind of smart building device, those are the three that I look for. Google Home, Alexa, and uh, HomeKit. That way, they'll, it'll work with everything you need it to work with. Um, it's amazing. Lutron killed it on this, and it is a really great way of controlling lighting in commercial and residential. I have now implemented it at some commercial spaces I have, as well as residential, and it is absolutely stellar. So go check out Lutron uh, for light and fan control. Really nice. Also, Google Home kills it. I mean, they're doing a great job with the Nest product and Nest integration. They fully brought them into the app. So we got some really great uh, technology there for building management of commercial structures. Your prefab shop, you could have Lutron lights. Uh, James, on on one of the my I have a I have a hanger and I put all commercial industrial LED lighting all controlled by Lutron. It is, it's it's next level stuff, man, on lighting, and it makes a huge difference on being able to see on stuff when you're working on it. Like if I'm cracking an engine open and working on it, um, there's nothing like nice even industrial grade LED lighting remotely controlled, man. It's awesome. So. That's it. That's all for the week. Mike Pink with Smart PM, episode 11 to episode 196. I'm sorry we took so long to bring you back on the show. It is great to have a Georgia boy on the show. You know, we didn't have your other Georgia buddies on this time because uh, it just gets overwhelming. So we're glad you came on. Yeah, thank you very much for having me today. Now, you're a Georgia Tech grad, so you're not going to be rooting against my Aggies this weekend when they go over to Athens and play Georgia, are you? Absolutely not. Okay. All right. Good. I like to hear that. I know. I know one person. We actually. I. I want you guys to to uh, do a little damage to that team because my Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets play them after Thanksgiving every year, and my brother goes to Georgia, and I need them to beat Georgia this year. <laughs> I need them to. So, so why don't you guys do some damage down here? Yeah. Exactly. Do some damage and show you the path on how to beat them. I know someone is is going to be rooting against a And M because of the prolific amount of smack that I talked this week about his uh, his local <laughs> team. And that is James Hillegas. James, it's always good to see you. Thank you for jumping on the show. No problem. 24 hours, Penn State is going down. <laughs> you take them down, dude. They got to go down. You got well, to stay up there. Yeah, we've got you know LSU, Ohio State, Clemson, and Georgia. One, two, three, four. Alabama sitting in the five spot, a spot they're not used to sitting in. Because, uh, you know, old go Tigers. Oh, oh, get Ogeron later. Cajun beat down on them. That guy, man, he's the best. Go Tigers. All right, folks, that's all we got today. Appreciate you joining in to the uh, Content Crew podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Geek Out on episode 196, our interview with Michael Pink from Smart PM. Next week, the Content Crew will be off for Thanksgiving. We're taking a break. It's going to be okay, I promise. We'll be back the week after December the 6th, episode 197 with Benjamin Crosby from Yates Construction. Make sure you eat that turkey. <laughs> And get out and go go hunt and shoot if you need to. And have a good time out there in listener land. To read all of our news stories, learn more about apps, workflows, and hardware, please subscribe to our newsletter at jbknowledge.com or text CONTACT to 66866. Big thanks to Jim Greenlee, our podcast producer, Kara Daltonaro, our creative producer, ad coordinator, Tish the Lynn. To listen to this show, go to the show website at thecontactcrew.com. We are nothing without reviews. We're nothing without you. Please leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help. This is the Contact Crew signing out. Until next time, enjoy the ride and geek out.